Hey, welcome to our uh, Wednesday night community. A little bit of a, a different agenda and schedule here tonight and tomorrow night. Last week, I started a series, Reflections on C.S. Lewis, 60 years afterwards. And of course, this November, we're coming up on the 60th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's passing. And so um, it's, it's always, I think, important to, to return to the people who help us return to Jesus and help us return to some of the classic literature and so many other things. And Lewis does that for us. And um, the only, the thing that I'm most excited about is that you don't have to listen to me tonight. That, that you actually get to listen to Dr. Jerry Root. Dr. Jerry Root has been someone who I have read and listened to lectures of for, for years in the past. And he's someone who has informed me greatly. And so I was thrilled when he accepted our invitation to come to Fort Collins, to teach on a weekend for us, to teach at our pastor's retreat, to um, re record a bunch of videos for us today and podcasts that we're working on, and we're just kind of working them to the bone. And he's so gracious to us, so we're thrilled that he is here. Um, many of you have, have uh, already know a little bit about Dr. Root, but let me just read a very brief bio. Dr. Jerry Root is Emeritus Professor of Wheaton College a visiting professor at Biola University and Moody Bible Institute, teaching C.S. Lewis courses at all three schools. He has been lecturing on C.S. Lewis topics for 43 years and has lectured on Lewis topics at 81 universities and 19 countries. He has nine published books, seven of them about C.S. Lewis. He is married with four children and 15 grandchildren. Earlier this week, I, I, I made a little faux pas. I've been so excited about uh, Jerry Root being here and C.S. Lewis. I'm talking about C.S. Lewis and Jerry Root's here and Jerry Root's here and C.S. Lewis here. And I said, I'm so excited for Jerry Lewis to come this week. <clears throat> and someone said, Jerry Lewis is coming? No, no, no. I was, I was confused. But anyway, um, real quickly, one last thing. At the end of uh, tonight, about 10 minutes before we end, um, Dr. Jerry Root's going to end things and offer a time of Q&A. Pastor Donnie and I will be running around with handheld mics. If you have a question, we will come to you and would love to have a time of Q&A. So as Dr. Root is speaking, write down questions and thoughts that you might have for that time, okay? Would you please give a very warm Timberline welcome to Dr. Jerry Root. I'm grateful very much to be here. I have enjoyed being with your church. We're in a live and vibrant place where life change is occurring. And the stories I've heard, it's just been marvelous. So anyway, I'm grateful to be here. I'm going to be addressing uh, issues related to C.S. Lewis's biggest ideas. And even though it's not rooted in a biblical text, it's informed by scripture for sure. So I think we should at least begin with a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is one evening quickly upon us, quickly it will pass. But I pray that you would have your way with each of us. I pray, Father, that you would take the crumbs that I offer and that you would distribute them in the power of your Holy Spirit as your Son distributed the crumbs he offered to the people by the side of the Sea of Galilee so long ago. And I pray that each person here this evening would hear something that would connect with his or her heart. And each one would have affirmed that you had spoken to them individually 
And consequently, they would have affirmed how deeply you love each individual in this room. We thank you for C.S. Lewis's life. Our interest is not to um, celebrate him so much, but instead to turn our focus to your son. And if Lewis helps us to that end, we give you praise. If he does not, then help us not to be distracted by Lewis because we want more of Jesus. And I ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. A little bit of background. Um, I, I was not academically inclined when I went to college. You have to take it by faith now, but I was an athlete back then. And I went to college to play sports. And I'd only read, I think, six books before I went to college, not counting comic books. And, and I became a Christian my freshman year. And I thought I should know the Bible then. So I read through the Bible that year from cover to cover. Probably took an hour, a year and three months before I read it the first time. Something I've tried to do every year since then. And I'm in my 56th read through the whole Bible. And I've read the New Testament besides that 45 times. And, and I can't put it down. I love this book. But it's not the only book I read. Some people say, I don't need other books. I've got the Bible. I say, I don't think you're reading the same Bible I'm reading. Because my Bible opens me up to a wider world. It doesn't shut me down. If you're a farmer and you're working hard and you only have time for one book, and you pick the Bible, you pick the right book. I honor you. But if you can read other books, let the Bible open up your world so that you see more and more of God in your world. And it should interest you. So anyway, I go to college. I start sharing Jesus with guys, and they're asking me questions. I had no clue what the answer to those questions were. So I started digging through the literature, and I began to find this name cropping up, C.S. Lewis. I didn't really bother to read him yet, but my older sister was teaching fifth grade, and she told me the plot of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe one night over dinner, and I said, come on, there's books like this? I went and bought a set. I read them. I was fascinated. I wanted to find out more about him. I read his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, where he chronicles how he moved from atheism to Christianity, and he was haunted by deep longings and the quest to find the object of those longings. I knew the longings. In some senses, Lewis gave me a vocabulary for my own soul. So I started reading him voraciously. I graduate from college, and a man wisely said to me, you do not get an education in college. You lay a foundation for one. And graduation in college they call commencement. You will now commence your education by building on that foundation. Pick an author who will take you places and make that author your life study. I think he could have said, pick a composer, pick an artist, pick a period in history, pick a country, pick a particular time of war, tragedy on earth, whatever the case might be. I picked Lewis, and I think I could have done worse. And he takes me to all kinds of places. He opens more than wardrobe doors. And you read him, and you want to read the books he's describing, and so on, and it's been a liberal arts education. I go to, I go to seminary, and I have to write a thesis. I was a PE major in college. I think the longest paper I wrote was five pages in crayon when I was in college. <laughs> and, and I have to write a thesis, and I, I knew I couldn't write it on the use of the optative mood in the book of Philemon, the Greek text of Philemon. It wasn't going to hold me. But I asked if I could write on Lewis, and they said yes. Yeah. So I started putting pen to paper. 
And I continued to read. I did my master's thesis on Lewis, my doctoral dissertation on Lewis. And as was said, I've been teaching on him for the last, studying him for 53 years, teaching on him for 43. In my read of Lewis, I have found that there are some big ideas in Lewis. And I want to open you up to those particular big ideas. But before I do, I want to say another thing that I think is important. Even though I wasn't academically inclined, I was always fascinated by words. I remember the first time I ever fell in love with a word. It was in Mrs. Reinhardt's first grade class when she would go through flashcards. And the word I first fell in love with was the word swish. I still love that onomatopoeic word, and my loyalty to swish was there long before it was popularized by a clean shot in basketball. And I always felt it was a good day if I got to read Swish when she was going through the flashcards. I remember when I learned words like subtle, perplexed, ostentatious, a word way too ostentatious for my vocabulary. But I remember learning one particular word that I think will help us as we begin our look at C.S. Lewis's big ideas this evening. We grew up poor. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. And, and my elementary school had a cafeteria, but it cost 31 cents to eat there. And for us, that was prohibitive. My mother always gave us a nice lunch. It had a sandwich, a couple cookies, a piece of fruit. But I always longed to go to the cafeteria. What was the experience of those kids who got to go there? And one day, to my complete surprise, my mother handed me 31 cents and said I could eat in the cafeteria that day. I was so excited. But when I got to the cafeteria, I couldn't have explained it this way as a third grader, but these were my exact sentiments. Being unfamiliar with the protocols, sociological protocols of elementary school cafeteria life, would I go in there and do something that I shouldn't have done and everybody would make fun of me? You ever had those experiences before? So I watched with intensity the girl in front of me. And I did what she did. She gave the cafeteria lady her 31 cents. I did the same and was glad that burden was lifted off my shoulders. She grabbed her fiberglass tray. I did the same. She put her cutlery on it and moved it to that chrome roll bar counter. Remember that thing? And the first thing on the menu were string beans. I hate string beans. I thought this thing's not so good as I thought it was. And apparently the girl didn't like it either because she said to the cafeteria lady, do you remember the cafeteria lady? Kind of heavy set, white hair and a hairnet, a white outfit with an apron that she had smudge marks all over it. She was the ubiquitous cafeteria lady who worked in every elementary school cafeteria in the world. That woman got around. And this girl says to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a small portion of those, please. I had never heard the word portion. And I watched. Cafeteria lady got one of those big spoons with holes in it so the juices could go through. She dug down into a deep pot, pulled out three string beans, and put them in a little bowl. I said to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a small portion of those too, please. She did the same thing for me. I went down the counter and I put the different things on my tray. And when you came to the end, what was at the end? desserts. I saw the most economically cut pieces of chocolate cake I'd ever seen in my life. And I wondered if this word had other applications. So I said to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a large portion of that, please. She cut me the biggest piece of chocolate cake I'd ever seen. And I said, that's a good word. 
Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want a larger portion of him. If C.S. Lewis helps me, bless him. If he distracts me from that, I don't want anything to do with him. I'm here to suggest to you that he can help you have a larger portion of him. He opens more than wardrobe doors. C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his books called, um, uh, uh, my wife says my mind's like lightning, one flash in total darkness. <laughs> it's, it's uh, he wrote it with E.M.W. Tilliard. Um, well, forget it. I'm not going to worry about the title right now. But the point was this. When you read a book, you are not trying to focus on the author. You use the author as spectacles. You don't make a spectacle of the author. Uh, it's called The Personal Heresy, the book. You're looking through the author's eyes to try and see what the author sees. And Lewis always has, close to his vision, a quest to want to see more of Christ. So the first big idea that we'll talk about is this. He wrote and in, 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 in lectured on this in the early 1930s. He hadn't been a Christian, but maybe four or five years. He said to the English faculty and students at, by, at Oxford University, we have fulfilled our whole duty to you if we can help you see some given tract of reality. You go to study a book and you want to see what the book says, you don't want to project on the book. You want to walk away with something, not project on the book and not get anything out of it. And so his first big idea is there's a real world that exists independent of my thoughts about it. Truth is not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. If I say to you, this is a book, that's a true word because there's a reality that supports a claim. If I say this is an elephant, elephants exist, this isn't one, that statement is falsified by the fact that there's no reality that supports the claim. And, and, and Lewis understands this. You, you can do it with the realm of ideas as well. You don't have to have something that's empirical that you could refer to. In the realm of ideas, you begin with the definition and you begin to think about that thing in an inferentially coherent way. And so you're appealing to some objective reality, independent of your thoughts, and you adjust the scoliosis of your thinking and even the scoliosis of your life to the plumb line of that truth, that object, that reality that supports a truth claim. The truths that you know, you can hold with confidence. You can have a sure word. This is a book that's a sure word. But it's not a last word about this book. This book has uh, a history. It happens to be a New Testament. It's got writing in it. It's got incredible things that God has revealed to us in this book. This is a, a book that's true. Now this is a Bible that's going deeper with that understanding. It has the four Gospels in it. It has the Pauline epistles in it, and so on and so on. The truths that I know can always be plumbed deeper and can always be applied wider and be understood in coherent relations with other truths. So consequently, 
I can have a sure word about what I know, but I have to hold that sure word in an open hand of humility because there's always more to know. And more to know in a way that's coherent with the objective reality that supports the claims about it. So Lewis's first big idea is there's a real world and I need to adjust, in a sense, the scoliosis of my thinking by the plumb line of that reality. Now Lewis was a Christian, so he also believed that that reality in this world is infused with the very presence of God. Uh, like uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning before him, who said, every bush is a burning bush and the world is crowded with God. In the last book Lewis wrote before he died, letters to Malcolm chiefly on prayer, he says, God walks everywhere incognito. My responsibility is to waken to him and even more remain awake to him. So here's this big idea of a real world that exists and I want to understand it. And as I understand it, I begin to grow and develop. That understanding should be dynamic, not static. And I, I like to think of it this way, especially when he sees something of the presence of God infused in it. The last line of an essay he wrote called Is Theology Poetry? He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. It begins to make sense of everything. I, I want to see if I can embellish this a little bit. There is a book he wrote, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, the last one he prepared for publication. I think chapter 17 of that book is, is, is the best thing Lewis wrote. That's my opinion. Other people disagree, no problem. But in there, there's a paragraph he wrote that I think will help us clarify our ideas. There's a word in that paragraph, and I want to define it for you. I don't define it to insult your intelligence. You probably know the word. But the first time I read this, I was clueless. So if you're here like I was then, I define it for you. It's the word coruscation. Coruscation. A coruscation is a sudden flash of brightness. We can talk about fireflies coruscating in the back garden on a humid summer evening. Or we can look at dark clouds coming from the west eastward, and we can look in those dark clouds and see lightning coruscating in the clouds. You get the idea? Sudden flash of brightness. And he writes this, making a distinction between gratitude and adoration or worship. Adoration exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. But adoration asks, what must that being be like whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. I remember when I first read that, it was around 1979, when Voyager, the interplanetary probe, was spinning, uh, sp going past Saturn, the most mysterious planet in our, in our solar system, the one with rings. And it took pictures and sent them back to JPL in Pasadena. And it was an up-close-and-personal look that we got of Saturn so close for the first time. It's got other rings. We knew from Cassini seeing the gap, there was a gap between the rings. But we found out at that time there was an outer ring. They call it the F-ring. And it's braided. It was braided. And I'm asking Lewis's question. What must God be like that he chose to braid the outer ring of Saturn, though no human eye had ever seen it before? I live in an academic environment. I actually have friends who are physicists. And I say, why is it braided? I've heard five different answers. Each one is a negation of the other four. 
One of my physicist friends said, Jerry, these are the questions that keep us physicists up late into the night wondering about them. I shared it with a firefighting friend of mine. He says, yeah, Jerry, and we don't know if God didn't just braid it for the picture. <laughs> I think of ships that park in the Pacific Ocean over depths of the ocean greater than the light of sun can penetrate. And they dangle cameras into those depths and take pictures of fish neon bright. Why are they those colors? There's no sight down there. Can't be to track or mate. Matter of fact, that's an interesting question in his own life. How do those fish get together in those depths? Can't be to ward off predators. And I just think to myself, what must God be like that he painted fish glorious colors in the very bowels of the ocean? I grew up in Southern California. I always like to see palm trees silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky or a mountain range silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky. Now I live in the Midwest in the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> a cornfield silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky. There's beauty there if you would willingly distill it out. But we could have lived on a darkened planet and we could have gotten word from on high there would be one sunset. We could have lined every west coast of every continent and every island on our globe and regaled our progeny by writing of that great event in our journals and diaries. But what must God be like that he has made our planet a perpetual kaleidoscope of sunrises and sunsets? We see it time after time, and so we, we become jaded by, by virtue of the familiarity. Instead of having our eyes open to see it, some given slice of reality, like he said to his students, and to see it and continue to be in awe of it, not only with gratitude, but also adoration. I think of stars twinkling in the night sky. I think one star would have been enough to awaken a sense of wonder and awe in every right-thinking, right-feeling individual. But what must God be like that he has glittered the night sky with stars and moons and shooting stars and galaxies? I wish you could have been with me when I was teaching at Wheaton's Northwoods campus up by Lake Superior. And the students came at midnight to my cabin and they said, Jerry, they're out, they're out. And we went out and watched the northern lights and blues and reds and greens coruscating and pulsating in the night sky. And we stood on the ski dock and did the only thing that was just, because justice is to render to a thing its due. And we sang hymns of praise and adoration and worship of a God who gave such glorious manifestations. Wow. What must God be like that he made delicate things, like butterflies, hummingbirds, peacock feathers. There's one you could get off on for a while. But Lewis is too honest to stop there. He forces us to ask other questions too. What must God be like that there are AIDS babies born in Africa, earthquakes in Haiti, tsunamis in Japan, School shootings in America. 
Lewis says if our religion is objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it's precisely in the puzzling or repellent where we begin to discover what we do not yet know and need desperately to know. Lewis's first big idea is there's a real world that exists independent of my thoughts, and I need to, as best I can, see that world and begin to adjust my thinking so that I am living and coherent with the world where God has displayed his glory in the things that he's made. The second big idea, and this is the biggest idea, there's 73 books by Lewis that are out there. He wrote 56 in his lifetime, and he wrote the rest after he died. <laughs> now, actually, there were collections of books put together from essays that he had written that had been published in different journals and so on. A guy named Walter Hooper brought these together and published them under common cover and common themes. 73 books. I could take you to every book and either show you how he expresses the second biggest idea explicitly or it's implied in the text. The second biggest idea relates to reality also. Reality is iconoclastic. Reality is iconoclastic. What does that mean? An iconoclast is a person who breaks idols. I, I have an image of God. Maybe I came here Sunday morning, I heard a sermon from Pastor Derry, and I was, it just blew me away. And some of the pieces of the puzzle came together for me. Maybe I had a late-night conversation with friends, or I read a book, and some of the pieces of the puzzle came together, and the image of my understanding of God was more robust than it had ever been before. It takes my breath away. Well, that image is helpful it is in the moment. If I hold on to it too tightly, it will compete against my having a growing understanding. And God is dynamic. He, he's, he's not changing. God doesn't change. But our understanding of him better change to keep up with what he's revealing about himself. Reality is iconoclastic. C.S. Lewis says in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, God is always kicking out the walls of any temples we build for him because he wants to give us more of himself. And Walter Elwell, the theologian, said, All theology is approximation. We got pea brains and we're trying to understand the God of the universe. All theology is approximation, and what we constantly seek are better and better approximations. Reality is iconoclastic. Lewis isn't the only one who champions this idea. You'll find it throughout history. Uh, I'll give you some examples. Baron von Hugel, an author who influenced Lewis, he was a philosopher in England. Baron von Hugel, in his letters of spiritual direction to his niece, Gwendolyn Green, wrote, Beware of the first clarity. Press on to the second clarity or the third clarity. Um, you've got Robert Browning, the poet. And he wrote a poem. Actually, he wrote one poem, a 500-page poem called The Ring in the Book. Lewis said it was one of his 10 favorite books. I go read it. 500-page poem. Took my breath away. The whole book is about reality as iconoclastic, basically. You can see how these, these streams fed into the river of Lewis's thought. But Robert Browning wrote another poem called Rabbi Ben Ezra. If you're married, write down that title, Rabbi Ben Ezra. I read it to my wife every year on our anniversary. It's the one that begins, grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. 
But about line 34 or 35 in that poem, Browning writes, Then welcome each rebuff that turns earth's smoothness rough. Welcome each rebuff that turns earth's smoothness rough. We can think we have it all figured out. We got everything in its proper place, all ordered in our minds. And Browning says, no, welcome those things that help you to see that the earth isn't smooth. It has texture. It has geography. It has peaks and has valleys. Welcome the things that help you to see it the way that it is rather than the way you have to have it be. Matter of fact, ask yourself, why do I have to be, have it be like this? Why am I shutting down my mind and I can't see it the way that it is? You've also got it in Tennyson's poem, In Memoriam. It's an 80-page poem. He wrote it after his best friend died at sea. His best friend was engaged to his sister. His sister never got over her grief. She never married. It's a wonderful, wonderful poem on grief. But there's this one line where he's talking about theological systems. And Tennyson says, Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee. And thou, O Lord, art more than they. God is bigger than our best thoughts about him. You can go to Augustine, St. Augustine. In the Confessions, he writes, The house of my soul is too small. Enlarge it, Lord, that you might enter in. And then how about Stephen in Acts chapter 7, where he's giving his defense before the accusers in Jerusalem. He's on trial for speaking against the temple up on the hill. And Stephen gets up and he says, you think you've got God in that little box up there on the hill? Oh, he's way bigger than that. In essence, reality is iconoclastic. As a matter of fact, when Joseph went down to Egypt... It was hundreds of miles from where that temple is, and God was with him. Matter of fact, Abraham, when Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees, and God lead, leads him to the promised land, God called Abraham. He was hundreds of miles from where that temple is. Matter of fact, when Moses was in the wilderness of Midian taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's sheep, and he came upon the burning bush, and God said to Moses, take your shoes off, Moses. This is holy ground. It was hundreds of miles from where that box is. Matter of fact, when David wanted to build the box, God said, David, I appreciate the sentiment. But frankly, heaven is my throne. Earth is just my little footstool. How will you build a box big enough to hold me? And here's, here's Stephen making the claim. Reality is iconoclastic. That is, it's a breathtaking concept. Our understanding of God should always be dynamic because God is big. The great theologian Lucy Pevensey in Narnia made this observation. Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion of Narnia. Aslan, you're bigger. He says, oh, no, child, I'm not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. And if you are not each day having the wonder occur in your heart that takes your breath away, then fall on your knees and say, Lord, I want more. I want more. G.K. Chesterton said, the world will never starve for want of wonders, only for want of wonder. That's a big idea in Lewis. But now I want to move to the third big idea. The third big idea. 
And this third big idea has to do with this concept of longing. Uh, you find it in virtually all of Lewis's books, where he seems to reveal a kind of groping heart. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. And Lewis had this sense of groping, of longing, of wanting more of God. And, and when he writes about this longing, he, he writes about at least three different kinds of longing. He, the first book he writes after he becomes a Christian is called The Pilgrim's Regress, an allegorical apology for Christianity, reason, and romanticism. It's his only allegory. The Narnian Chronicles are not allegories. It's a little bit different literary form. He calls them supposals. This is his only allegory. And there's a guy who's the main character. His name's John. And he sees a vision of an island off in the distance. And it sets him on a quest to try and find the island. He knows the longings for the island. And eventually, in this particular allegory, he comes to a hermit who represents history. And he says to the hermit, I want to know about the longings. And the hermit says there's at least three. If there's three longings, there could be 3,003. But Lewis rivets our attention, the attention of his readers, on these three. There's the longing of myth. Muthos, the Greek word for myth, just means story. There's a longing that's awakened by story. The second, and, 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 and by the way, this hermit uh, situates each one in periods of history. So in classical times, it's the myths, like Homer, and Virgil, and so on. The longing awakened by myth. The second one is longing awakened by the lady, the image of the lady. And he roots this one in medieval thought, and particularly as it relates to Dante and Beatrice, or it relates to Chaucer, and so on. The third kind of longing he situates in the Romantic times, the late 1700s, early 1800s, and it's the longing that is, that is uh, questing to have what's broken in us fixed. It's a longing sometimes rooted in nature. In nature, we see that which is sometimes pure and undefiled, and we recognize by contrast the brokenness of our own heart, and we want the brokenness fixed. There's another author who uh, I got to actually through C.S. Lewis, and her name's Evelyn Underhill. I think if I would have gotten to her before Lewis, I probably would have made her my life's author. She was the first woman given university-wide lecture status at Oxford University. Before then, women could only lecture to women. But when Underhill, this philosopher of religion, so eminent, all of a sudden they let women lecture uh, to men and women. Matter of fact, um, she wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis. She, she was probably 30 years his senior. She wrote a letter to him once, and he wrote her back and said, receiving that letter from you was the greatest literary experience of my life. Eminent, eminent woman and philosopher. And Underhill, writing about these longings, writes about three longings. I would suggest to you they're synonymous with Lewis's. She said this, there are three deep cravings of the self, three great expressions of man's restlessness, which only mystic truth can fully satisfy. The first is a craving which makes him a pilgrim and a wanderer. It is a longing to go out from his normal world in search of a lost home or a better country. The next is that craving of heart for heart that makes him a lover. 
And the third is the craving for inward purity and perfection, which makes him an ascetic and in the last resort, a saint. I want to suggest to you that Underhill's pilgrim longing is similar to Lewis's myth longing. That Underhill's lover longing is similar to Lewis's lady longing. And that Underhill's ascetic saint longing is similar to Lewis's nature longing. Let me see if I can play them out. In the pilgrim longing, you can think of uh, stories, especially classical times, like Homer, uh, Homer's Ulysses. What is it with Ulysses? He's been fighting in the Trojan Wars. The wars are over, and he just wants to go home to his wife, Penelope. And he's in the quest to go home, and when he gets there, he finds out it's not the same. The suitors have come, and they're disrupting everything. And what Homer's saying is we long for home, but sometimes the home we think we're longing for is not the one we thought. Uh, you have it in Virgil's Aeneid. Aeneas is a citizen of Troy. He's there when the Greeks have destroyed his city. He flees, and he goes because he wants to build a new city. The city he will build is Rome. When Virgil writes that book, he's trying to write for the Romans so that they could have a story or a mythology for their own city so they can understand their own identity better. And he's caught between the city of his birth and the city that will one day be and Augustine, who didn't like the classical myths, loved that one because he said, this is emblematic of all of our lives. We're people caught between two cities, the city of our birth and the city that will one day be. When you hear the word romantic, it comes from Virgil and the longing for Rome. And Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, for he was looking for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. There it is. It speaks to us. I think you could think of it another way, too. I, I remember a few years back going to my 50th high school reunion. When you go to your 50th year reunion, they give you a, a name tag, and it's got your yearbook picture on it. If it didn't have it, nobody would recognize you. <laughs> All my friends are bald and fat and white-bearded, you know. Life's been hard on them. I'm fine. <laughs> but life's been hard on them. And you go back. I remember, I remember State Street Elementary School. Remember where the cafeteria was? From the kickball court to the one-bounce court. You couldn't play volleyball. You weren't coordinated enough to keep the ball in play. So you let it bounce once first. From the kickball court to the one-bounce court, it seemed like it was a half a mile away. Only one guy, Brian Anderson, the best athlete, he could kick the ball that far away. The rest of us, we just dribbled the ball. And the, and the basketball court, it seemed like that basket was a million miles high. You needed Jado rockets to get the ball up there. You play a whole recess of basketball, and the score at the end of recess is two to six, because that's how many baskets you were able to make during recess. You go back, and I could stand at the kickball home plate and spit on the one-bounce court. And I go to the basketball court that seemed so impossible when I was a kid, and it's up to my eyes. And that, that playground looked like it was giant, like Magellan couldn't navigate his way from one end of it to the other. And now I look at it, and I say, how did we ever have fun on that cramped quarter? And you go back in the vacant lots where you played on. They've been built on, and the old buildings that were familiar, they've been knocked down, and new buildings are there. And you know what you find out? You go back, and it's not the same. 
You're homesick for home, but that's not the place. G.K. Chesterton said, all of us are homesick in our own homes. What's the home we're looking for? If I could put it another way, a child hears a great story at bedtime. And what does a child say right after they hear that good story? Read it again. And Lewis says, what's going on there? The child knows every twist and turn and plot. The child has come to love the world of the story. And it awakens in them a desire for another world, the only other world they could ever really know, which is heaven. And there's the homesick longing. One other quick story about the homesick longing. When my son Jeremy, my oldest, is 44 now, but when he was a boy, whenever Wheaton College needed a child to appear in one of their plays, they'd call him up and say, Jeremy, come on down and, and audition. And he played young Pip in the adaptation of Charles Dickens' Great Expectation. First third of the play, he had the majority of the lines. If we couldn't find him at home, we'd go up to the dorm to one of his thespian buddies' room, and he'd have his earphones on, rocking out to his music, you know. For two and a half months, he's living the life of a college student, going to rehearsals night after night. They did 14 performances. He came to love this world. And when the play was over, I go to pick him up the last night. I said, come on, Jeremy, we got to go home. And he is walking through the theater and didn't know that for the students, they didn't leave the theater after the last play until they dismantled the set. And he's seeing the world that he loved be dismantled before him. And he looked like Obi-Wan Kenobi when that planet blew up and he knew there was a disturbance in the force. And he said, Dad, I've got to sit down. And for about 10, 15 minutes, he sees this world he loved just be dismantled. Finally, I said, come on, Jeremy, we've got to go. He shuffled out to the car like an old man. When we got to the car, he said, Dad, I just didn't want it to end. I said, oh, Jeremy, it's the nature of every play that it has to come to an end. It's the nature of every year in school that it has to come to an end. It's the nature of your childhood that one day it will come to an end. Maybe you're longing for the one thing that never has to end. And he looked at me. And he said, do you mean heaven, Dad? Do you mean heaven? And I said, yeah, heaven. The longing for place. The second is the longing for the lady or the longing for relationship. Lover longing. Lewis attributes it to Dante particularly. I remember when I first heard about Dante. I was in Mr. Trejo's seventh grade class. I can still see the yellow textbook. I can still see the picture of Dante standing at the Ponte Vecchio over the Arno in Florence as Beatrice comes walking by. And, and Mr. Trejo said, yeah, Dante met this girl named Beatrice in Florence. He kind of lit a candle in his heart for her. He married somebody else, had his kids by somebody else, but he's always burning hot for this other woman. And I always thought to myself, well, Dante's a chump. I didn't want anything to do with Dante. And so it went. I was just prejudiced towards Dante. I don't think Mr. Trejo probably ever even read him. And then years later, I become fascinated with Lewis. Lewis's favorite narrative poet was Dante. Lewis's friend Charles Williams, one of the Inklings, 
also wrote a book of literary criticism on Dante called The Figure of Beatrice. They had a mutual friend, Dorothy Sayers, and Williams was talking to her one time. She had a schoolgirl knowledge of Dante, and Williams is talking about Dante, and she says, oh my, I need to go back and reread this. She rereads it and says, I got to know more about this, and she goes and learns Italian and does the first translation of Dante that maintains the Italian rhyme scheme in the English text. And I'm thinking to myself, Mr. Trejo, Lewis, Williams, Dorothy Sayers. I said, I better go back and read Dante. I started with the Vita Nuova, New Life, and he talks about the ninth day of the ninth month of his ninth year, meeting Beatrice Portinari on the streets of Florence. And he wondered, what does she represent? What does any first love represent? It's not that person. That person just awakened first love. It's for your ultimate first love. 25 years later, he writes The Divine Comedy. And Virgil, remember the poet about longing and romantic longing? Virgil leads Dante through the Inferno on into the Purgatorio. And halfway through the Purgatorio, Beatrice, who's died, comes out of Paradiso and collects Dante to take him to the very threshold of the vision of God. And right at that point, Dante writes, she turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. And all of a sudden, the light goes on. It wasn't about Beatrice. It was about God. It was about the longing to know God relationally. He's the archetypal relationship. You know, when Lewis's wife, Joy, died, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. You know what the last lines are in that book? They're in Italian. She turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. I can put it to you another way. Have you ever felt lonely before in your life? What does that tell you about your nature? If you felt hungry, it tells you you need food. If you, tell, if you felt thirsty, it tells you you need drink. If you felt lonely, doesn't that tell you you're a sociological being and you're made for relationships with other people? But if you ever felt lonely in a crowd or lonely living under the same roof with other people you care for and you know they care for you too, it doesn't prove anything, but might it not strongly suggest you were made for some relationship no mere human relationship could ever satisfy. That's the lover longing. The third one is the ascetic saint, or what Lewis says, is awakened by nature. Uh, Wordsworth had this sense in his poem, The Prelude, that he was aware of his lost innocence of youth. Some people say, oh, wisdom comes with age. Maybe it does. I've seen people who didn't get wisdom with age, they just got bitter jaded, hard, so on. Wisdom can come with age, but Wordsworth noticed that with his aging, there was a sense of a loss of innocence. The childlikeness was gone. The rigidity, the callousness was at risk of setting in. And he longed to have that lost innocence of youth restored. He wanted the broken stuff in him fixed. Underhill calls it the ascetic saint longing. I can give you an image of this. Years ago, I was asked to speak at one of the Oxford University colleges, Hartford College. I've, I've spoken or lectured or preached at about eight of them. 
But this particular night, the chaplain, Michael Chantry, who is a friend, asked me to speak at the Evensong service and afterwards have high table with the faculty. Have any of you ever been to high table at Oxford? You've all seen it if you've seen a Harry Potter movie. Do you remember where the owls are flying in and out in that dining hall? That's a real place. That's Christ Church. That's the most spectacular of all the dining halls at Oxford. But this one is at Hartford. Hartford was a, was a great hall. And I would say it would be from about here to that wall and as long as this, that hall. Long tables run the length of the hall. Perpendicular to them and elevated about three steps is the high table. That's where the faculty sit. If the students are eating roast beef, the faculty are eating prime rib. If the students are eating steak, the faculty are eating filet mignon. Everybody comes dressed in their academic gowns. The meal begins with a Latin prayer. The wine pours freely, and all the great benefactors and graduates are looking down from their portraits at you while you eat, and I think they're watching to make sure you use the right knife, fork, and spoon. <laughs> the chaplain introduces me. This is Jerry Root. He just spoke in chapel. I sit down, and I'm sitting across from a woman who taught history there. And she says to me right off the bat after the Latin prayer, so Jerry, why are you a Christian? Real loud, so everybody has to attend to this. I didn't know why she was asking. Somebody said to me afterwards they thought she was asking to make me the entertainment at that night's dinner. And so I said, okay, why am I a Christian? I could have entered into a philosophical or theological debate and ended up with indigestion after that meal. Why did you become a Christian? Was it because some slick argument convinced you of it? Somebody flashed all the apologetic flashcards and all of a sudden you said, oh, this is great, I'm going to do this. No, I know what, why I became a Christian. I became aware of brokenness in my life. I became aware of the fact that I believe in the high ideal of love, but there have been times I've had sharp words with people I say I love most in the world. I believe in justice, but there have been times I've been unfair towards somebody. I didn't set out to be unfair, but I realized in retrospect I had been. And I'm saying this to this woman. I became a Christian because I'm aware of brokenness in my life. And I heard the message that the God of the universe loved me unconditionally and forgave me of that brokenness and wanted to have a relationship with me, and I found that compelling. Well, she was taken back by that answer a little bit. And she said, well, I can appreciate that, but that's just not my issue. I said, really? I think I understand what you're saying. I became a Christian my first year in college, and I, I didn't become perfect overnight. That took two or three weeks before that happened. <laughs> and the whole faculty busted up in laughter. And I looked at this woman, and I said, your laughter just betrayed you. She said, what do you mean? I said, well... You and I have never met, so you couldn't know the specifics in my life that made that statement utter nonsense. But either your read of history or your read of your own life tells you nobody's got it together. She said, you got me. I said, I'm not out to get anybody. But when you deal with these things in your life, what gets you by? She said, I have faith in humanity. I said, well, I'm interested in anything that will help me. Let me ask you about your faith in humanity. Have you ever been wounded by another human being before? She said, of course. I said, have you ever wounded another human being before? She said, I suppose so. She was a little softer on herself. 
I said, how does this faith in humanity work when we live in a world where we've been wounded by others and we've done our fair share of wounding? And she looked at me, and uh, the man who, who taught French who sat next to her looked at me and said, how does it work for Christians? And we spent the rest of the meal talking about the love of God and the mercy of God. These are the longings. You have the longing for place, a heaven longing. The longing for relationship, your first love, a God longing. And you have a longing to have the brokenness fixed. And Lewis writes about these. Those are the big ideas. The quest to see things as they are. The quest for reality. The recognition that reality is iconoclastic. That whatever we think about it, there's more. And then also the recognition that we have this deep longing in the quest to find the proper object of the longing. Those are, that's not an exhaustive list, obviously. There are other kinds of longing. Remember on Flight 93, Todd Beamer was that guy who said, let's roll. He used to come to my house for Bible study. I knew Todd. His son, Andrew, I did his premarital counseling last October. He was just getting up to go take a flight to do some business and he's going to come back and his head never rested on the pillow he lifted it from that morning. And I remember saying to myself when I heard that, how can we be safe? There's nothing in this world that gives us a guarantee that we're going to be safe, but we long for safety. Why? It's a heaven longing. We long for the place where things will be together. I remember too thinking to myself that day, what does this mean, this 9-11 thing? We still haven't quite figured it out. But why do we want to make sense of our life experience? Doesn't that tell us there's something that's wooing and beckoning us? That This must be a world where sense could be made, or we wouldn't even be asking the question. Maybe we don't understand, but we're questing because we believe that somehow fundamentally there's a sense maker behind it all. Anyway, those are the longings, and, and there you go. Those are the big ideas. Any questions? <laughs> Maybe there's no questions. Somebody has one? Do me a favor, if you ask a question, please tell me your name first so I could address you because you, you matter. Okay, we go on over here, Dr. Reed. Your name? Hi, my name is Becky. Say it again. Becky, my name is Becky. Becky? Um, I have a number of friends in academia because I was formerly an you, academic. You're going to have to go real slow. I have bad ears, I have hearing okay. aids, and I'm so sorry. No problem. I have a number of friends who are academics. Uh -huh. I was formerly an academic. And it's very hard to reach them with Christ. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions, particularly for people who are at secular schools in the liberal arts. Uh-huh. Well, I, I have a lot of friends who are academics, too, at secular colleges and at Christian colleges. And I found it's a mixed bag. Some of them have their hearts hardened and they're not interested. Some of them are interested. And you just have to pray and say, Lord, open my eyes and help me to see what the word is that I might say that might break through to them. 
And then be in awe of the fact that God will answer that prayer and sometimes give you something to say. The other thing, too, is stay related to them. Stay in relationship with them. I've seen people that they've come to Christ, but it's been over many months. And if you're concerned about them, stay connected out of that concern. Let's say they have a child who gets sick, and you find out about it, and you go to the hospital room, and you sit with them in that hospital room with that child. And all of a sudden, whatever arrogance might be there, or whatever um, uh, hardness of heart might be there, it softens because you came to them. And you do Christ-like things with them. I mean, maybe they're struggling, take them a meal, something like that. And I think over time you might see change come. And if you have like five or six people like this that you're working with and you're praying for them all, my guess is you'll see one at a time at different times come, come around. I think it's possible that a person could so harden their heart against God that they could be like Pharaoh in the book of Egypt. But until that person's life is gone, don't give up on them. Don't give up on them any more than Jesus did when even from the cross he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And if you go to Matthew, I think it's 23, where he's going through the woes. Might be the Luke passage where he's going through the woes. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he's pointing out the incongruities in their life. And he gets to the last woe. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build shrines to the prophets, testifying the fact that it was your fathers who killed the prophets. Who are you going to find to save you from the wrath of hell? In the next verse, Jesus says, therefore, I will keep sending you prophets. And that's the one where he ends it. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those who are sent to you, how I wanted to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers its chicks, and you would not let me. But what does he do? He still goes. And I think that persistence is really important. And, and even that lady at the, at the table, you know, at Hartford College, I wish I could say I was really clever to figure that out. I'm not that clever. But I believe the Holy Spirit was guiding me. And even Jesus said, if you're dragged before magistrates, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you what you need in that moment. Trust him. Trust him. It doesn't give you a, a concrete answer, but I hope it at least gives you hope and it prods you to want to stay hanging in there with those people. Yeah, blessings. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, my name is Bill. Bill? Yep. Wild Bill. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, there you go. You know what? The thing <laughs> not is, in though, church. Not the in thing church. is, though, you have a perfect head. If you just had a white beard, you'd be so handsome. Well, you know, if you give me three or four days, I could do that. Three or four days? That's impressive. Well, it's not like yours. Huh? It's not like yours. It's not? No, it's not that full. Oh. Well, the, I'm full here. <laughs> okay, Wild Bill, what's up? Um... All your years studying Lewis, uh -huh. and even with these three big points, what's your favorite quote from him? Of Lewis's? Yeah. I'll tell you what it is. About three and a half weeks before he died, he received a letter from a little girl in America. She was 11 years old. Her name was Ruth. She wrote him through his publisher, and it arrived. He's virtually on his deathbed. If he wouldn't have answered her, there would have been no memory of it, no loss of it. But he took time to answer this little girl. 
And here's Lewis, this great Christian scholar, on the threshold of eternity, writing to a young girl on the threshold of her earthly experience. And he says to her, my favorite Lewis quote, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much will go wrong with you. And I pray you may always do so. That's my favorite. Did you have your hand up too? There's another one there, I, I think. Oh, you got someone there too, okay. So then you can go after her. Is that okay? Go ahead, I'm sorry, your first name? Phyllis. Phyllis? Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. I have a, this is a really tough question. Um, friend whose grandson just committed suicide. Yeah, yeah. And um, how do you help them? I, you know what, I wish I could give you the magic words. I don't know what they are. Um, you can hope I don't know what drove him to suicide you can hope that maybe even in those last moments that maybe something would have come to him it, it, suicide is just a complex thing Some, I, I know people who have taken their life because they wanted to just stick it to somebody I'll show you, I'll kill myself I know of cases like that I know other people where they are so burdened by what might be going on. Sometimes it's physiological. They just can't break free of all the stuff that's going on chemically and psychologically. I, I, I know other people, they're just hopeless. I don't know what the answer is. But that's that story. I believe God is good. I believe he will deal with every situation justly, rendering to each situation its due. But that might not be the thing. That, that's that son's story who took his life. But now you've got the people who are weeping. And, and my experience with this, with, with these kinds of grief and so on, is that the story is not something that's static. It's dynamic. I had a young man once who was in a college ministry I was involved with, and he asked me if I'd go talk to his great aunt about Jesus, because she was dying of cancer. And I said, I'd be happy to if he made the arrangement. And I showed up at the house. It was 10 o'clock on a Friday morning. I still remember it well. I rang the doorbell, and the great uncle answered the door. He knew the God guy was coming, right? The pastor. And he started screaming at me. What kind of a God do you serve? Why would God treat my wife like this? She's suffering so much. Why doesn't he take out some dictator someplace? Why does she have to suffer? He's screaming at me. I'm thinking to myself, I don't need to be here. But I promised my friend David I would talk to his aunt. So I just bit my lip. The guy's screaming at me. Finally, he walks me through the formal living room. Finally, he gets me into the den, and there's the great aunt sitting in a chair. I knew she had been bedridden. It was with tremendous effort she had gotten up that morning. She had a wig to cover up the hair loss. She had clothes that fit her like a tent because of the weight loss. She had all kinds of makeup on to cover the ashen gray color of her face, but she didn't cover the ashen gray color of her hands, indicating that she's close to death. And the great uncle continues to scream at me. And then all of a sudden, he goes stomping out of the room. And the great aunt looks at me, and she says, I'm dying of cancer. Can you tell me how I can know for sure I'm going to heaven? 
And I got on my knees next to her. I took her hands in mine, looked in her eyes, let my tears join her tears as I shared with her the gospel. And she prayed to receive Christ that day. About six weeks later, she died. And the family asked if I would do the funeral. And when the funeral was over, the great uncle comes walking right up to me fast again. I'm going, oh, my heavens. Are we going to go through another episode at the house? And he grabs my hand in both of his. And with tears in his eyes, he says, thank you for coming by that day. Thank you for coming by. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And the light went on. He was losing his wife. Naturally, he would be angry. But she was losing her life. Naturally, she would want to know how she could be sure about heaven. And not only that, over the six weeks after she became a Christian, he saw how much comfort she got from her new faith. And he was grateful I came by that day. You can't judge where it's at in the moment, tragic as these moments are. And I don't think in that moment you just described, you're going to make much sense of it. But I think it works like this too. For a moment, think of the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. You got it in your mind's eye? Okay, now think of the next worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. Okay, now think of the next worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. And the next? Now think of the next worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. And the next? And the next? And the next. Is anybody still with me? I asked this in Behind the Iron Curtain in Ceausescu, that Stalinist dictator's uh, world in Romania, to a room full of Christians, all who had suffered for their faith. Nobody got to 10. I asked it in Sudan to a bunch of southern Sudanese black tribal Christians all of whom had seen relatives hacked to death by the Janjaweed. Nobody got to more than 10. But let's say you could get to 20 or 30. Now, by contrast, think of all the good things that ever happened to you in your life. The number of days you had meals, roof over your head, number of times you gave gifts to people and you brought joy into their life, you read a book and your mind was nourished with good ideas, the times you saw sunrises and sunsets, double rainbows, you notice birds singing, or even cicadas singing antiphonally from tree to tree on an August evening. If you look at the bad things contrasted with all those good things, the bad we experience are errant brushstrokes across a massive canvas of good. But go back and visit the bad things. I don't know how many you have on your list. I have eight. But how many of you have seen good come from some of the bad you've experienced in your life? I've seen good come out of five that I don't know if I could have gotten to that depth of goodness had I not been through those situations. If I have given time seen good come from some of the bad I've experienced, I have every good reason to believe that good could come from all of the bad I've experienced given eternity. I have no good reason to say no good could ever come from this because my own experience counts against such a universal judgment. So I don't know what to exactly say to you in the moment, but I don't think the moment is definitive. I think it's a moment in a process. You pray for your friends, and you pray that God gives them grace, 
And I wish I could tell you more, but all of us, I think, grope to some degree when these things happen. Is that fair? Yeah. So anyway, somebody over here had a question. Your, your name again, you told me beforehand, and I forgive Allison. me. Allison. Say it again. Allison. Allison, that's right. Forgive me, Allison. It's okay. Um, my question was, it's a little tough, but how did Eve not know it was a trick when the serpent started talking? How did Eve, what? Not know it was a trick when the serpent in the Garden of Eden started talking. Well, she was fairly innocent, wasn't she? My, my guess is she didn't have a wide range of knowledge. And I don't know, maybe animals did talk before the fall. Maybe the consequence was some of that was taken. I just don't know. But I don't think that she was wise. I don't think she had virtue. I think she had innocence, but that's different than virtue. Okay. I'll say more about that in a minute. Did you have more to that question? Yeah. Um, at the Tower of Babel in the Bible, everyone got their own language. Does that like include the animals or... Like well, I don't did think, animals talk before that? I don't or? think the animals were talking then. Yeah, I don't think... The, the serpent was talking. I don't know if it was that the serpent had the capacity to talk or Satan was speaking through that serpent. My guess it was Satan was using the serpent. But, but nevertheless, I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know. So I try and stay in my lane and talk about the things I do know. But let me say something about Eve. C.S. Lewis, in a throwaway line in a literary critical work called The Allegory of Love, on page 60, he says, innocence is not goodness. He doesn't say innocence is not good. It's good in that it's unspoiled. But it's not goodness in that it is not proven character. Innocence is not goodness. Even virtue, even in its prime, even the divine, even in its prime, cannot make a virtue a gift. So let's say you have an area of temptation you struggle with, and you finally get weary of it. You say, Lord, I, I, I just I don't want to get caught in this vortex anymore. Please help me. And you end up finding some friends that you can trust who won't betray you, and you share with them. You let down your guard. The secrets you can't talk about control you. So you let down your guard and you share with them. And the next time you face that temptation, you enlist them, enlist them to be prayer supports, and you walk through it, and all of a sudden, wow, you get through it for the first time. And the next time, you enlist your friends again, and prayerfully, deliberately, you walk through it again. Next time, you fall on your face. But the next time, you enlist your friends, and you get through it again, and the next time, you get through it again, and the next time, you get through it again, the next time, you get through it again. Pretty soon, it's becoming a habit. Aristotle called habit man's second nature. And pretty soon it gets to the place where you hardly have to think about it because it's ingrained in the habit of your life and this temptation that used to destroy you doesn't have hold on you anymore. You know what happened at that point? You're better than Adam and Eve were before the fall. They had innocence, but you have character emerging. Now you don't get cocky about it because that's just one area. You start to get cocky, God opens up the curtain and shows you got a thousand other places you need to work on. <laughs> but nevertheless, there can be real deliberate growth. And, and Eve was innocent, but she didn't have character. And consequently then, you can have character. You can prevail. And if you get tempted, there are times when you can just, what does it say in Scripture? Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. We tend to become afraid of the devil. We're not supposed to. Flee temptation. We think we can flirt with temptation and be fine. Flirt with temptation, you'll get burned. But resist the devil, he'll flee from you. 
So I hope that helps a little bit, Allison. You know, when I used to watch TV, the thing I hated the worst is when all of a sudden it went a black screen and it said, to be continued. Oh, but this poor woman, she waited. Can we just do one last okay. question just for her? What is your name? My name is Linda. Linda, you know what your name means? I do know what my name means. Beautiful. Means beautiful. I Absolutely. know. There you go. <laughs> Um, I have a loud voice, so I think you can hear me well. Yeah, I can. Okay. I would love to sit and have lots of questions for you, but I don't have a question for you. But I'd like to share an awareness that you reminded me of that I'm very pleased with. Okay? Thinking about um, Lewis's first idea, how our reality can be so skewed and how we look for reality. We look for the, the reality that's real or I, I, I don't know. Hold the mouth. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Anyway. I, yeah, I don't think I need this, but I do. So we'd look for this reality. When my first husband passed away, oh. my reality was totally skewed. It was all dark. And I, I would go outside and I couldn't understand how everyone else was not in this dark bubble that I was in. My, my, it, it didn't seem right. How could this be? How could I be living? This, is, this was reality. And I'm from Southern California as well. And one day I, I was on top of a hill and I was looking down at this phenomenal sunset and the ocean. And all of a sudden I realized that this was the reality that was real. My reality was not real. Yeah. And what a glorious feeling I had. And that's what I understand you to say that I'm very interested now in reading more about Lewis because I want to know more about this phenomenal, beautiful reality that he says there's more and more and more of. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. The, the, the one thing, I, I don't like to be self-serving. Whenever I speak at things, I never bring my books. But if you want a good exposure to Lewis, I put together a book called The Quotable C.S. Lewis. It's 500 pages long. And we draw quotes from all of his books. We put them not only topically, but arrange them chronologically. So you can see what he wrote early on that topic and how his thinking develops, or sometimes how it changes, because he has to correct his bad thoughts. It's called the quotable C.S. Lewis. And that might be a good exposure. And you could read the sections on reality. But yeah, sometimes we think, our reality, what is that? Reality is what it is, independent of what I think about it. And I want to bring my mind into sync with that. Now, if you're hurting, the reality is you lost your husband. You should be hurting. If you're not hurting, then something's incongruous with your proper emotional response to reality. Because we don't just think about reality. We have emotion that's coherent with reality. And we make volitional choices that are coherent with reality. So you did have a legitimate reality you were hurting. But that reality, that, that sense of your hurting circumstances is not definitive of the larger picture of, picture of what God's doing in your world. I hope that's helpful. Anyway, go ahead. Tomorrow evening, 6.45 p.m., uh, Jerry's going to be speaking on the, Jerry, help me with the title, is it the intellectual journey that... Yeah, his, his, Lewis, he had the longing. We talked about the longing tonight. But he had all these intellectual barriers he had to get over the things that drove him to his atheism. How does he move from atheism to faith? And we'll talk about that journey. Would you pray for us as we close? Yeah, I will. I'd be happy to. 
Gracious Lord, we don't deserve to breathe the air you give us to breathe. We don't get, deserve to be in close proximity with others. And yet you've given us all these things as gift. We thank you for this evening that we could think about some of these ideas that Lewis writes about. I pray again as we prayed at the beginning that you would help each person to sense there was something in what we talked about tonight that spoke to her or his life. And I pray that each one would find themselves hungering, just as Linda said, she wanted to know more. Help us all wanting to know more, that we might discover more of your grace, more of your goodness, more of your glory, more of the beauty of who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.